Today's interview is with a man that is a household name in Australia. He grew the business with a zero dollar, that's right, zero dollar initial investment. It is now worth half a billion dollars. And yes, I asked him, I asked him the question, and that's the figure that he put it on. He was so incredibly gracious with his time. I also had technical difficulties in this as well, and he was just absolutely lovely. And what was very refreshing about this whole interview is that the drivers behind the man is not funding a lifestyle. It's more than that. And it was such a pleasant surprise to find that out. I give you the man behind the brand of Jim's Knowing and the Jim's Group, Jim Penwin, whose real name is actually David. And we start the interview with him explaining why he went with the name Jim. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success. And you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. young guy there about my age called David, uh, the son of the guy I was working with, and I said, oh, call me Jim, so it kind of stuck. <laughs> Is that how you sort of came up with the name the Jim's Mowing, because you were known as Jim on the farm, or? Well, I just called myself Jim from that time onwards. My, my family still called me David, and, and relatives and so forth, but just for anybody else, I was Jim, so that was just, that was just my normal name. So when, so, so when I started advertising and putting leaflets out, I just called myself Jim's. Jim's mowing because it was me mowing. I mean, that was that was what it was. Nothing, nothing very special in thinking about it. What made you start mowing at the first place? Because you were studying at the time, biohistory. Well, actually, I've been gardening since I was eight years old, um, doing work for neighbours and so forth. Um, so I did that most of my childhood, um, and then in after I came back from the farm, I, I took a gap year before going to university. And I just um, decided to have a go at launching a small gardening business. So I, mm-hmm. I put an, I put an ad in the in the window of the local um, like a hardware store. So I got a couple few jobs out of that, and I just continued with them. And then a few years later, I bought a mower. So it was kind of just very gradual. I mean, I was starting touching a dollar fifty an hour in the beginning, back in 1970. So that's where it started from. So what was your initial investment in the business to set it up? Well, nothing, because I just said, <laughs> I, I, unless you count the cost of a, a square of cardboard, I, I just put it in, in, the, in the window and I, and I wrote on it with my phone number and people rang from that. So it cost me absolutely nothing. And I had no equipment. Late, later on, when I had to buy, I, wanted, I bought a car. So then to pay for that, I got myself a mower and a, and, and a trailer to, to go around with it. So, but, but that was a very small investment then. That was a few years later. So why did you go down the gardening route when you could have gone down the tutoring or anything to do with the academic side of things? Oh, I just like gardening. I love being outside. Even today I spend a fair bit of my time outside as much as I can. Um, yeah, I just enjoyed it. And, and it's something very different. But, you know, also as an undergraduate, you don't have a lot of opportunities. I mean, you can I – did, I did have a job working as a – a barman drink waiter at a, at a guest house from the, in the holidays and so forth. That was, that was in 1971. That was my last actual job. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, gardening is better. It, it actually pays better too because, you know, I would, I would mow somebody's – when I got my lawnmower, I could charge five bucks to mow a lawnmower, which took me half an hour. I mean, 10 bucks an hour back in the 70s was pretty good money. Mm. When, when did you decide – because you started it when you were studying and – but you were studying biohistory, weren't you? Yeah. Well, I was in the history department formally and, and then doing a PhD. That's right. Yes. Okay. So what is biohistory? Well, I went to university to try and understand, of all things, the um, the mysteries of why civilizations rise and fall. I wanted to know the, mm-hmm. the movements in history. And I had, I had a sort of sense there might be some biology behind it. So I was looking at patterns. Uh, particularly of dem- demography and so forth, population growth and decline, birth rates and so forth, and the, there's various kinds of cycles that are associated with that. So it just kind of developed a theory that, that I decided that the, the, the basic understanding of um, human society could be understood in terms of biology. Which, so why did you not pursue academia at the end of that PhD? Because my theories were so outrageously out of the norm, there was no possibility of any kind of job. I mean, I mean, if you want to be a historian, you've got to be the world's expert in, let's say, the the, um, the 
Wars of the Roses or, or you know, Victoria in the 1940s or whatever, whatever the history is supposed to be an ultra specialist. I was the absolute extreme. I was a total generous of all of history. And I wasn't even, I wanted to even trick myself to history. I was going into to biology, into psychology, into economics, into, into zoology, all kinds of things. It was just wildly out of, of any, and people just couldn't cope with it. I mean, I, I got knocked back my PhD the first time, and, and the, my teacher supervisor never saw anything like it. He said two of them just gave a paragraph, and the third one basically made some comment. It said if this was the magnum opus at the end of some distinguished career, you know, we considered it. But you know, who is this guy? He's, he's everything, everything you're talking about, everything, every explanation in history, I was disagreeing with. You know, why did the First World War take place? Well, they'll give you, your historians give you 20 reasons. And I'll tell you, it's the same reason as why lemmings not migrate. It's exactly the same pattern, and it should be, in terms of epigenetics, exactly the same thing. I mean, that kind of stuff. It was just wildly unorthodox. There was no way I was ever going to get a job. And have you, because you're published now, aren't you, in terms of biohistory? Yes. Well, I've had quite a few publications in the research program that I've sponsored in recent times because that was the basic idea I had to go I, I couldn't go through the academic field so I had to have enough money to be able to fund my own research institute that was the fundamental idea because until that day I'd never thought of the idea of becoming rich it just I couldn't didn't care but I knew I had to make money and so then I after um, you know something like 10 12 years ago I approached um, a um, academic at La Trobe University and said do you want to try these experiments on rats and so he said, yeah, sure, so go for it. So we've actually discovered quite a lot of stuff. And then I put that in, into the biohistory book that we wrote. So your research on rats, is that more more chemistry-based in regards to drugs or is it more behavioural-based? Well, what we're doing is looking at the effects of things like mild food restriction. Okay. You get changes in physiology, in, in epigenetics and behaviour and so forth, which are characteristic of human civilizations. So when when a country so just just things like for example um, uh, monogamous pair bonding is, is it's characteristic of civilized society but it's also characteristics of animals that are mildly food restricted and you get certain other changes like a decline in testosterone and so forth. So how does that so then you're relating that back to depression and um, other mental health. Well, issues at the moment. That's your basis of the research, is that correct? Well, it has a lot of implications for those sorts of areas. Um, things like drug addiction, particularly. You know, we, we believe that we're working. We're looking at, at ways of um, sort of artificially. Um, you can achieve a lot of things by restricting food, but that's very difficult for humans because we're not very disciplined. So what we what we're doing is we're approaching a whole number of different avenues of ways to actually have the same effect. And one of the implications of that, it should be a very good way of treating things like addiction and certain kinds of mental illnesses. Not all of them, but some of them. So how long, and I've got no concept because I'm not any form of academic or scientist, but how long until you feel that the research will be final? Or do you ever get to a point where you're final in, in research? Oh, no, no, no such thing as a final. We just... We just starting this thing it, it, it's the first okay. step onto a new continent we've discovered some very interesting things we've discovered that you can use pheromones from the rat's urine to actually have some of the same effects which is really interesting yeah but we're also looking at things like use of micro rna and so forth and and, and cytokines, cytokines and and protein the proteome and all, all sorts of different ways of achieving these things it's quite a you know it's quite an elaborate project to get all this looked at and we're also looking at ways of making people more resilient too, which is a, which is a, a, another part of the theory, which is to do with relief from anxiety and so forth. So your whole business was really just set up to fund this research that you wanted to do because you were being shunned from the typical academic society. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I wasn't being shunned so much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it might have been a hard word. I, I didn't even apply. My, my, my thesis advisor said, you're wasting your time. You're just, you're just not going to get a job. No one, nobody's going to employ you with this kind of stuff. The tr trouble was, too, even though my theory was all in, in the films of social sciences, you might say, the actual implications to test them, you had to go into biology. And I had no, I had no qualifications. My, one of my sons is actually now just finished his uh, degree. He's a the neuroscientist and he's commencing a PhD in that area. So he's, he's very well qualified to do this kind of stuff, but I certainly wasn't. So is he going to be taking on more of the research aspect of things? Yes, he's involved in the project. 
the, the, he's, oh, he's, he's working on it, um, and also I've got, I've got three full-time researchers on it at the moment. So how big was the business when you decided to pursue this more of a full-time avenue rather than a on-the-side bit of income? Well, basically, I finished my PhD in um, – though I was not back initially. I got it later, but I was not back – that was in 1982. And then I, I just had nothing I, – I was, I was deeply in debt. I, I was newly married. I was just in a completely appallingly hopeless situation, you know, somehow needing to become a, with, with no useful skills particularly, needing to become a multi-millionaire. So that was what I started, you know, mowing lawns full time. I really didn't know how to do anything else. And, and I was pretty, I know I was reasonably good at it. I've been doing it for, for, for so many years already. I understood how to, I can, I can still mow a lawn very effectively and neatly and do the edges and stuff. And, and you know, I'm good with customers and, Looking good customer service, so I understood the basics of the mowing business fairly well. How did you convince your? What was your structure when you first started? Was it bringing on subcontractors, or was it to build the business and and to set up this franchise model? Because at the time, really, I mean, I was a kid at the time, but I was sort of starting to see in the eighties and early nineties, and I'm giving away my age a little bit there, Jim, but um, these you know, the odd sort of Jim's mowing trailers and then suddenly they were everywhere and we were like, this is crazy. And then it was such a franchise opportunity for everybody and, and still is, but it was sort of that and McDonald's was really the only franchises that were around in Australia at the time. Yeah. Mind you, we weren't the first to do this area. VIP was this Adelaide-based company. When I started, they had 250. They just they weren't okay. that big, but they were they were around. Um, look, I started off pushing a lawnmower myself, and that was for, for for some time. That was all I was doing. I was mowing lawns. Um, what I what I realised pretty soon is that I actually made more money from building up and selling lawn mowing rounds than I did from actually mowing the grass myself. So I used to sell, you know, um, I, I used I used to just put put a bunch of customers together. In fact, it started when I wanted to complete my PhD because I needed to. They told me if I resubmitted it, I get it. So even though there was no, you know, career prospects, I thought I might as well, you know, get this thing. I spent ten years on it, so I, I had to get rid of the some customers so I could my, my customers so I could um, have time to finish my PhD. So I actually sold, put a, a group of customers in on the market, like in the age, just put an advertisement in the age, and um, it took quite a while to find the, the buyer and then they started investigating stuff and while this was going on I kept on getting more customers and so by the time I'd actually finished um, got the the lawnmowing ground handed over and collected the money for it which was you know a few thousand dollars it was decent money in those days I, I had another bunch of customers so I had to sell them so I ended up and then by the time I'd sold that one I had another bunch of customers so I ended up selling three lawnmowing grounds in a row very quickly and I realized there was so much more money in this than there was in mowing lawns myself. So then I started doing that. And then I started taking on subcontractors to help me with that. But where were, yeah. where were you getting the customers from? Well, just, just you know, leaflets, local papers. I, I used to put my photo on the leaflets because I found I got a better response if I did. Just me okay. with a beard. That's where the whole logo thing started from. It was just a photo in those days. Yeah, so I find it very easy, you see, because the, the thing of it is, look, I didn't, I didn't know much about business. I probably still don't, actually, but, but I was very good with customers. I was really, really passionate about looking after customers. People used to say things to me like, I never knew my lawn could look this good. I just did the edges perfectly, and I was on time, and I was just really professional, and it was so easy to find work. It's interesting that you say it was so easy to find work because there's a lot of people out there that would say that that's not the case in regards to trying to generate customers. But I'd say that your focus on like putting the customer first was probably a lot of word of mouth as well. Yeah, I got I got a lot of referrals. I got a lot of people just people just like the work I did, and but it wasn't that difficult to find work even even now. I mean, it's probably a bit hard now because because franchising puts a lot of pressure on it. In those days. Most of the customers you pick up would be somebody who'd just been let down. These days, it's a lot less common because, it, well, gyms in particular, I suppose, we, we tend to grab our customers and keep them and we look after them fairly well. So you don't, it, it's not as easy as it used to be in those days. But it, it isn't that difficult because people, people want great service. We, we, even, we, don't even, we don't try and compete on price either. One of the things I tell my franchisees in their first training is, is don't be cheap. Charge a good price for what you do. 
you, you can, there's plenty of work around if you look after customers well. How many franchises do you have at the moment uh, now? Just under 4,000, about 3,890 or something last time I checked. And you've, you've branched out to not just the mowing, you're into really everything. So I saw an antenna, Jim's antennas the other day. Yeah, and fencing, pest control, test and tag, full maintenance, dog wash, about 50 different divisions. That's right, yeah. So at what stage should you say, I'm going to diversify into other areas away from the gardening well it wasn't really my idea like a lot of things um i had to try it at, at applying my system to cleaning um and i but i thought you know nobody's going to want jim's cleaning because jim's is a guy the beard and a hat i look like a gardener i don't know i haven't got a beard actually <laughs> your image actually looks like my dad from the 90s with his terry telling hat on in the garden yeah well, i used to i used to wear that hat <laughs> because i've got reasonably fair complexion so and but but also you kind of a broad brim hat because when you walk under under branches gets knocked off so that that's why i used to wear the hat and the beard was just mm -hmm. I, I always had a beard so that was just me but um so look look i thought of this idea of cleaning and i thought well our, our contracts have already got done so let's no nobody wants to get jim's cleaning what if it's a woman you don't want a woman doing jim's clean that's crazy so i i sort of this thing of this sunlight s-u-n-l-i-t-e with all these sprays and stuff and i sold a couple of franchises and it completely failed couldn't find the work so that's waste of time just to stick to mowing and then somebody came to me and said okay what about Jim's cleaning and I said no no that's ridiculous Jim's is a mowing brand clearly nobody's going to want to have somebody do cleaning um, under the name of Jim's and they said it'll work and I said no it won't they said well all right we'll, we'll do it ourselves under a kind of license and I said well okay have a go I don't think it's going to work so they tried it and it worked People just people liked the brand. They, they they were familiar with the brand, and so it transferred to cleaning, which really surprised me. So that's kind of how it started. As in as in so many areas, I just didn't comprehend. Somebody came to me with Jim's fencing once, and and the idea of Jim's fencing, and I said that's ridiculous. No, it won't work for Jim's fencing. No demand for that. They said we'll do it, and I said all right, you do it. So they did it, and Jim's fencing is hugely successful. Biggest problem is we just can't find enough fences to cope with the demand. So. Initially, you actually started out licensing the name. Well, actually, in in a sense, it's not exactly a license. It's more we have a, a structure called, um, like our franchisees have their own business. Then you have what mm -hmm. we call a regional franchise, which looks after the franchisees, fran after the franchises, which basically recruits them and supports them and so forth. Um, and then you have what's called a divisional franchise. So in some divisions like mowing and fencing these days, I'm a divisional, and others like cleaning and dog wash and somebody else's. So it's kind of like a, a structured arrangement where, where you've got different kinds of roles within it. So they, they, we, we, we control things like customer service and contracts and so forth, but they look after the individual divisions. I mean, I don't personally know much about pest control or um, antennas, but the people who run these divisions are very expert in those areas. And you've got 55 divisions now, is that right? No, it's about 50. But, I mean, it, it, it depends what you call a division. There's only eight divisions which you've got 100 or more, which is what we call a serious division. But some, some, there's some divisions where I've got one or two franchisees, so they're just basically experiments or things just starting up. What have been the hardest lessons and obstacles that you've had in terms of growing the business? Has it been more, more business-related or personal or...? Well, mostly it's because I'm plain stupid a lot of the time. I tend to put a lot of effort into things that are uh, I should realise a lot more quickly are uh, uh, not a good idea. Like, for example, I started trade exchange once, once or twice, which, which really cost me a lot of money and gone nowhere. I actually launched, helped to launch a funded a psychology institute, which I thought would help the research and end up costing me a million. So I tend to blow money on the wrong things. My wife has much better business judgment than I do, actually. So that's probably my main, my my main issue. And I'm, I'm I don't know. I, yeah. But do you think that that's all part of the education process in business learning? I mean, obviously they're expensive lessons, but it's still a learning process and what hasn't worked, and therefore you can then. Oh yes. Learning is everything. If I knew what I knew now, in in a general sense about business, and you take me back to 1982, oh, I'd be I'd be I'd be rocketing ahead. I just so much that you learn. We're still learning things. 
we're still learning even in our, our I mean we've been going 30 years even in the last year we've changed uh, our advice on the way to support franchisees for example we used to initially thought that the best way to support a franchisee would be to do a, a business review once a year we found that was useless and then we found that that, that ringing them once a month actually ringing them once a month as well as responding got a much better result and we've more recently find that, that ringing them weekly is, is even better still and we've got software that backs that up so you're still learning all the time what is the best way to support a franchisees and, and franchisee and also how do we get the best customer service what sort of systems and methods do we do how do you control it things like surveys and so forth we're learning all the time there's not a day goes by in business that I don't learn something do you find that your wife's your main sounding board when you have business ideas or within the business that you go to her to sort of bounce things off her no, not really actually we 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 just i do i do talk about certain things with her but but she's actually the things that we're doing now like we're developing a a, a really good program for for our franchisees to run their businesses called jim's jobs and that's she's always approved of that kind of thing so she she just when I come up with something that, that's sensible, she she does tend to um, be very supportive. She's wonderful, actually. She's she's great. It's it's having a great marriage is the the best thing I can tell you, Fiona. You mentioned that this is your fourth marriage, but you've also got eleven kids. Are any of them involved in the business at all? No, not really. I've got one daughter um, who's possibly going to take a role later this year when she finishes her masters. I got I've got I've got one son who runs the research project which is which is really really that's the absolutely the ideal best thing I, that that's far more important to me than than because it, what it means is if I walk if I walked under a truck tomorrow my life work isn't going to be abandoned Andrew would take it on and look after it it's, it's all cared for in the in my um family trustee and everything else Do you find that because you're so successful people come to you for business advice Well People often come to me for sort of general advice and stuff. I, I usually refer them to my book, which is which is published in Jim's.net. You can just download it, every customer a fan. And I say, look, have a look at that, have a look at what's on there, and then if you've got any questions, come back to me. So I, I give them that general advice. When it comes to people who want to start a new business, of course, what we can do is talk about the possibility of doing it as a Jim's division, which which usually isn't going to happen, but sometimes it does. And that's how that's how new divisions get started. So, and then, of course, when, once you're in gyms, then then I'm freely available. Every franchisee and franchisor has my direct phone number and email address, and they'll contact me at any time about anything. Jim, you're quoted as saying that wrath is your greatest downfall. Is that really the case? Well, it's one of them. I get, I get, I, I do tend to get annoyed at times. I try and control it. I'm very impatient by nature. I, I just. So I have to try. It's one like emails too. It's more under control. So you can sort of think, do I really need to send this? I get pretty emotional about things, particularly when it's to do with service, service to my franchisees, to my customers. Yes. Your main driver seems to be customer service. Oh yes, of course. I mean, I'm driven by service more than anything. It's just an emotional driver. It's got no. It's not. It's not a financial consideration. I just feel very offended when one of my franchisees is is let down or by the franchisor or one of my customers is let down. I just, I just hate it. It's just, in, yeah. You seem to really love what you do. Do you think you'll ever retire? Oh, I'll retire one day and, and we'll, have a, we'll have a lovely ceremony and I'll be at the guest of honor and I'll be in a box on the floor. Really? Why, why, would you want to, why would you want to retire? Why would you want to give up what makes you joyful? Why would you want to make up, give up something so much fun? It's so exciting. I mean, Look, I'm 68 now, so I know I've got probably another 20 years left. I'm in very, very good health. Um, I've got a lot to achieve in 20 years. I've got so much to do. I'm going to achieve more in this next 20 years, I reckon, than the rest of the last whatever. I just, so much to be done. So what's left on your list then to achieve? Well, I just got last night a proposal from my from my son, Andrew, uh, for this new study on this resilience, this factor we call V. We're doing the initial experiment with it. He's set up an animal model, and he's going to do that as part of his PhD too. And that's that's incredibly exciting. So we're going to understand the epigenetics. We're going to understand the hormones. We're going to understand the whole lot of things that we need to know very badly. And from that, we can move towards ways of helping people to be to live better and helping societies to work better. That's incredibly exciting. 
And Jim's is, is wonderful right now. We're developing this new program, Jim's Jobs, which will be the best thing around. We've, I've got a big team. We're spending about $3 million a year on software development right now. This big team working on us. We're just have, going to have amazing stuff going in. And all sorts of things that will help people to run their business better. It will remind people that they haven't actually called a client back, for example, or they haven't turned up to an appointment. It will make it so easy to confirm quotes. It will even chase clients for money if they don't pay. It will... It'll chase up quotes to see whether they want to accept them. It'll it'll do a lot of your accounting for you in a very simple way. It's really simple to use. It's going to be it's just that's an incredible buzz. I find that really, really, really exciting stuff. We've got a new program that's just been launched, which helps our franchisors to ring and to look after their franchisees better. It cuts their time in half, and they can do these calls and they can they can take notes very easily and they can be reminded. They can do everything just driving in a car and do all these great talks and just really look after franchises well and make them successful and happy. We're just getting more and more really, really good stuff coming through all the time. Is that where Jim's is more headed now, tech and AI? Yeah, tech is the biggest opportunity. Tech is an amazing opportunity to do the things that you want. See, I actually go through, one of my jobs every day is I go through and read about a third of our clients' leads respond to surveys, and I go through and actually individually look at every single survey with a comment that's a low star rating or no star rating at all. And I look at them and look at what's happening and why. And then I talk to the franchisees about this and what's going wrong and what can we do. And then trying to figure out a way of actually avoiding the great majority of these complaints. That, that could be absolutely revolutionary because, because if you, the, your customer service is great, the leads pour in. One of the strangest things in recent years is that the, even though we haven't grown as much as I'd like, we're still growing a little bit, but the, but the leads are growing dramatically. We, we, we're getting a huge problem these days with unserviced leads. There's just so much work coming in, and that's because reputation has improved. And we've actually got, got to the stage where we can't even, in some areas, we can't even spend the advertising money. We have to give it back to the franchisees because they're so busy all the year round in, in some areas, some divisions. I mean, fencing, for example, is just incredible. It's about like 60% unserviced these days. You mentioned that 60% for fencing leads are unanswered. How many across the whole brand are unserviced leads? Well, close to 200,000 a year. Wow, that's a huge amount. It's a lot of leads, yes. It's it's not far off. I think the latest figure is about 28% of all leads. It's It's a... It's becoming a huge problem. Uh, mind you, the, the virus is incredibly good for us, and I'm not saying I want it to happen. I would not. If I could if I could snap my fingers and cure it, of course I wouldn't. It causes terrible suffering. But from the point of view of gyms, it's, it's an incredible opportunity because our leads have actually gone up. They're actually up. So far this month, they're up 15% over last... No, actually more like 20% over last year. But our franchise inquiries have gone up like 60%. Do you think it's because people are home now and seeing the issues and have time to to work on them? Well, I don't know why it is. You'd think if people are out of work or economically stressed, they, but, but, um, they, they'd less likely get things done. But I think one of the reasons is because there's not lots you can't spend on. You can't go out to dinner until recently. You can't go on an overseas trip. You know, if you're not going out, you're not going to buy a lot of clothes and stuff. What do you do with your money? Do you think it's because people now are at home and they've got time and they're seeing the issues that they've got around the house, so they've got the time now to invest in in getting them fixed? Well, it's, it's possibly so, but bear in mind that the limit to our growth is not work. We haven't been limited by work for years, even decades. It's franchisees that we need more than anything else, and that's why this particular crisis is so good for us. And I said it's not good for the country, and I'm not happy about it overall. But in terms of gyms, you've got a situation where we've got stacks and stacks and stacks of work and people are out of work and, and, and where are you going to get a job? I mean, you, you've run a restaurant, you've, you've, you've had often quite responsible, you've got, you've got no job. What are you going to do? Well, we've got work. We've got work in all kinds of areas and doing all kinds of jobs and not just a dead-end work to work that pays quite well because we, we would recommend to all of our franchisees to work on an hourly rate of at least 60 bucks an hour. So you're talking about a decent living at the same time, you've also got the opportunity to grow that, to put workers on. I mean, some of our franchisees are, would, be, would be clearing a million dollars a year and more because they, have, they, they do these major businesses, partly, which is partly easy because work is so plentiful. You're lucky that a lot of Jim's franchises are not able to be 
replicated by AI. They're very physical, on the job, on the spot um, jobs, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's going to be tremendously helpful. That that that's the point. Look, you you can't you can't conceive of any way of automating the sort of thing we do. How do you how do you get AI to come and talk to you about a fence? And then and then it's 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 not just you've got to actually relate to the client, let them to understand what's going on, what sort of fence they need, talk about the different versions. You've got to turn up. You've got to actually build the fence. I mean, it's not conceivable. You you could you could you could automate 90% of the economy before you start automating what we do. So it's actually, it's actually very, very good from our point of view, the whole development. AI is, is, is fantastic. What we do at Jim's, you couldn't have done these days, you couldn't have done without AI. I mean, I mean the, you know, being able to book jobs online and so forth. One of the things this new program will allow us to do is have the jobs booked in automatically. So actually with a franchise, you can tell they've got a a blank spot they're in this general area so the client maybe when they ring up we can just say to them straight away okay would this afternoon between two and four be okay that, that kind of potential knowing where every one of our franchisees is so we can give them the best so they can just suddenly say here's a blank spot suddenly a lead appears there and they just turn up bang bob's your uncle here's another hundred bucks in their pocket that kind of thing is fantastic and then the, the survey system is great too Survey system has been revolutionary for us because, and it's great that people do respond, about one in three of our clients respond. That's caused a dramatic improvement in service, which has also meant that our leads have increased, which means we can look after our franchisees better. Are you investing in other companies or startups at all, Jim? Oh, no, I never invest in anybody else. I, I, I know what, I can, I can get a much better return by investing like, like in, in IT development, or actually one of the things I do do is I buy back divisions and regions, regional franchises in my own system, which is actually a very good investment. Oh, you actually buy back the state? Yeah, not, not, we, mostly they're less than the state, but what I actually do is if a region comes up that's a reasonable on the market, I will buy the rights to that, and then I'll have a neighbouring franchise or look after them. But we basically control it. It's actually a very good investment. We, we get, we figure between, you know, 25 and 30 percent return on investment so it's there's nothing there's nothing out there that could equal that you've been quoted as saying that you hate holidays yes i do why well it's it, it's it's boring i mean it's boring i think one of the hardest times of the year it's been christmas and new year with nothing going on you know i can take a we i took my family on a cruise for a couple of weeks all my kids and stuff which was first time ever but the first week was good and after that my goodness gracious you want to get back to work I can't stand it. I haven't actually done cruises. I would have thought that being stuck on a boat, I would agree, would be boring. But holidays in general, I love to travel. So I don't know <laughs> if I can agree with you that uh, holidays are boring. Well, I, no, I had, I, had about, I had about eight of my kids there. So it was kind of a family reunion in a way. It was good. It was, it was great. But it was just, it was just uh, very uncharacteristic. I don't usually spend a lot of money, actually. Either, so, but we just thought we'd do it, and it was. A, and I had one of my sons come back from from the, New York where he's working, and, and yeah, so it was a get together. It was good, but too too long, too long. If you're not spending your money on holidays, what are you spending your money on? Well, I, I, research. Yeah, but but investments and stuff. I bought a I bought a farm which we're now developing as a sort of a organic food forest, and I'm very passionate about environment, those kinds of things. Are you going down the permaculture route? Yes, yeah, it's sort of a permaculture idea. I've got a guy who's an absolute fanatic who works works on it, and he's and he's just developing, you know, we just ways of growing things in a way, and making the land productive without using chemicals and pesticides and stuff. And it's 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 a really exciting project. I spend a lot. I actually work physically on the farm quite a lot, clearing blackberries and cutting weeds and stuff, and digging up garden beds. I, I dug up a garden bed from the from the grass, and I've got a thousand head of corn, um, all organic corn, come up. Um, this year so it's it, it's great fun to do that kind of thing it's, and good exercise and gets me outside but there's that kind of stuff yeah, but mo mostly i reinvested the business in various ways the, the computer software especially my dreams to have an organic farm jim it's 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 wonderful i really really love that sort of stuff i just think that you know you, basically this farm was growing was 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 growing cattle and you can get about two tons per acre in terms of of meat and, and cattle, as you know, destroys the, they, they burp methane, they, they wreck the atmosphere, they destroy the soil. They're, they're not good. And also, they're dreadfully unhealthy. I do not eat red meat. But 
we can grow, when this thing is developed, we'll be growing like 200 tonnes per acre of organic produce, which will market locally and, and stuff. And it's, it's just an amazing project. Oh, really? How big is the farm? About 100 acres cleared. Are you based in the city or are you based on the farm working remotely? I'm, well, I'm not in the city. I'm in the suburbs. I'm in the outskirts of Melbourne and, and my office is in Murabat, which is next door. Um, it's, look, it's half an hour to my farm and it's got, it's got the internet on there. Of course, I've got, I do emails. I've got my phone. It, it's, yeah, I can, I can, what I basically do is I'll, I'll, I'll do the stuff inside and then I go out and spend a few hours, you know, clearing blackberries, or whatever, and I'll come back and do emails and I'll take phone calls and stuff. So I'm not really cut off. Anyway, I'm sort of working seven days a week. So it's kind of like not a, uh, it's not, it's not really much of a distinction between business and everything else. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't mind. People people ring me at seven o'clock at night. I don't. I don't. I don't care. Weekends. It doesn't make any difference to me. I mean, as as a Christian, I'd like to take the Sabbath off, but I just can't do it. Why are you digging up blackberries? I would have thought throwing a couple of goats in there would have sorted it out rather than digging them up. Oh, we are actually. We are. I've just ordered. A, I've just. In fact, this last week, I've got a. Um, you know, you know those dog fences they do. The. the yeah. We don't we don't like electronic fences because the wombats they tend to tend to crush them and also the animals can get their their feet into them which is quite distressing they can get entangled but so what we're doing what we I've just ordered from this company um, called Hidden Fence is this this fencing system that's um, based on on you put a a collar around the goat and apparently they do use it for goats so we're doing this as an experiment in actual fact yeah I'm I'm this is this is my initiative. So I've I've been researching that just last week. I've ordered it and hopefully it'll be arriving, you know, sometime in the next few days. And then Mark, the guy who works in the farm, will set it up. We've been discussing it, and uh, we can use that to move the goats because you've got to be careful with goats because they'll they'll eat the trees. So you've got to put them in places where the trees aren't. So we're going to use this as a system and trial. If it works actually well, we'll we'll make it available to neighbours and so forth because it's a it's a great way of doing these things organically. I hate spraying stuff, and we want so as I said, we won't we won't use any sprays on the farm. So you dig it out by hand or you use goats. But goats is good. Yeah, I love goats. I love goats, but apart from the rectangle eyes, they're a little bit freaky. I do love them though. Apart from that. Well, I just think that I love, I like, I just like farm animals. We've got sheep on the farm, which we keep things down. We've also got llamas. We're sort of running a small llama stud because llamas are great. They don't, they don't, um, they've got soft pads, so they don't wreck the soil. And um, they guard the sheep, which is good because there are sort of wild dogs and things around. But there are also another thing about llamas is really good is they poo in a, in a pile. They, so you can actually go ahead. So just a couple of weeks back, I went around and picked up six big bin loads, you know, rubbish bin loads of llama poo and put it on the berry bushes in the vegetable garden, which is a really fun job. I, I know, not everybody's idea how, how to a recreation, but I, I, I really enjoy it. How wonderful, though, that you can see that tree benefiting. It's mm. greatly rewarding, I think, when you can physically see it. I've got, I, grow, I grow tons of potatoes on this place, and we, we actually sell it locally. We're starting to sell it locally. It's all organic and stuff. And, and you just do things like you, you put the potatoes in the in – the, um, we used, um, what do you call it, aged manure to set the whole thing up. And then, and then you that, – that's the only addition. Otherwise, I just dug it up from the turf and the grass, put the aged manure on. And then we actually plant – or I plant the potatoes in these um, potato mounds. And between them, you plant um, uh, beans and uh, buckwheat. Oh. And then, and then, uh, when the, when the seasons come to an end, you you you, you put the uh, manure over the stuff like that, just from the the llama poo basically. And then you you dig it up, and you, and where the beans and the buckwheat go, that's where the mounds go next year because they've put the nitrogen back into the soil. So it's all these these systems, and and the amount of productivity and that sort is incredible. It's beautiful black crumbly soil. It's so much better than what was there before. I just get great satisfaction. You would not believe how much food comes out of that plot. Are you in contact with David Holgram, the co-founder of Permaculture? No, no, I'm not. Mark, Mark's in touch with these people and knows he, he's done it on a small scale. He's, he's, he just loves this whole project. It's his, his, his passion, his life. He's, he's a great guy and does everything with local, local stuff too, using, um, you know, we even let, we let the, uh, the willows sprout a bit in the fields and then, and then get to it and you trim them and get to a certain height and use them for poles, for fencing and so forth. So you always use local materials. It's always 
protective of the environment. He even likes blackberries in the wide area to some extent because he said it's actually protection for the native animals. They can escape from predators. He's not he's not he's not a total enemy of blackberries. He's just not not in the not in the main paddocks. We get we get great blackberries too. Yeah, yeah. You, oh, I've never considered that about blackberries. I always thought of them as a noxious weed. Well, they're also great to eat too. You know, we've got a we've got a, a grove of blackberries which is just near our front gate, near a chicken pen, and and for some reason it's got the most amazingly productive blackberries there. They just you just just, just Tons of the stuff comes out of this. This small, it's it's a great bush. I love that one. Is that because of the chickens though, with the chicken coop? No, not the chickens. There must be some water down below that they they go into. It, it's just and, and and also when you get blackberries in a place where there's good sun and there's good water, they just they just they're, they're the most productive. You just you just got to spend a bit of time on it. I mean, I quite enjoy clearing blackberries. It's kind of fun. It's one of my favourite jobs. You just get in there and you slash them back and you you cut them down and and the, and that's for the and they're for the bigger ones. We'll use the goats, hopefully. But it's it's good. But then you just leave them in the place where they where they. Yeah, you don't want to clear them entirely. Just just keep them under control. With you being on the farm, do you run around or on the farm? Because it's well known that you love running. No, no, I, I actually, while I'm at home, I run on a treadmill and, and use a rowing machine. I also play squash when I can, which has just started this past week, which is great. And um, on the farm, no, I just work physically hard. <laughs> Seriously speaking, you're doing, you know, five or six hours of hard manual labor a day. You don't need to, to run a lot to keep fit. How did you get into running? Did you always run? Yes, actually, I was, strangely enough, when I was uh, in high school, I... I um, did a test that I discovered from my pulse rate that I was one of the least fit kids in the in the class because I don't much like sport. So I just started jogging after that, which was very strange. This is back in the in the 60s when hardly anybody jogged. Jogged it was odd behaviour, but yeah, I just think it's good. If someone wanted to start a business but didn't want to be a franchisor, what would be your advice? They don't want to be a franchisee. You mean? Yes. Sorry, franchisee. Uh, read everything you can get, including my book. But but seriously, I would say one thing, and and I'm not. This is this is easy enough to check on it. The you, your chances, if you look look up some look it up yourself, you you can find the sources on these things. If you start a business like a cleaning or a gardening business, those kind of things, your typically your attrition rate in the first year is between ninety and ninety five percent. The most basic research will tell you that of these kind of businesses, like ninety to ninety five percent fail in their first year. Now, our equivalent is like 11%. And there, are, there is reasons for that, including the fact that we provide training and provide support, but also obviously provide a lot of work. So I would say if you want to go into your own business, it's not a bad idea to start with a with a, a small franchise. And it doesn't have to be us, but, you know, whatever. Get yourself going, learn the tricks of the trade, and then go off and be independent. And, and, and quite frankly, um, we don't stop a person going. We just pay a small fee. And, and they can go independent if they wish to. But our franchisees don't stay with us because we make them. We stay because we can give them support and value. You built the business from what I actually didn't realise was no initial outlay. I thought that there was some small initial investment, but there was zero. So this is a little bit of a cheeky question, Jim, but if you were to sell the business now, how much would you sell it for? Oh, if somebody came to me and offered me uh, a figure, I'd say half a billion dollars. Yeah. I, 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 but the point is, Fiona, I'd be insane not to, because because the the, the purpose of my life is the research. But, and it's it's fun the research. But if I had that kind of money, then then I'd have to do it because the research is more important. You have a goal in life, a purpose in life. But the point of it is, it's worth so many times more than anybody would conceivably pay me, but nobody would ever pay it. Because my, my, my valuation of my business, I mean, you know, my, you might value a business at, at, um, at three or four times its earnings, and, and I'd value it at three or four hundred times its earnings. So I'll never sell it because nobody would ever offer me enough money. Because basically, it's a great business. It's fun. It's it's and 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 also too, it's it's a it's a moral responsibility too. Because there's you know more than four thousand families out there that depend on us, and we make a lot of difference to their lives. 
and, and we look after people in a way and they get a great living, people who can't, you know, do other things. For example, there's this guy I was speaking to just last week. He's 78 years old. And this was a guy who'd had a successful career. He'd been like in management and so forth. And he said he'd make more money being a Jim's mowing franchisee in his 70s than he ever did in any of his previous careers. Now, you get a guy like at that age, he was 67 when he bought the business. What, what, what's his options? He's a great guy. He's had a great background. Hey, you're too old. You're over the, over the hill. But he's been able to run a great business. Hmm. What's your criteria for choosing a, a franchisee to come on board with gyms? Do you have any set criteria that they need to adhere to? Yeah. What are we looking for? Yeah. Um, what, what's my criteria franchisees? Um, you, obviously, one of the things we try and do is get them out on the road and have a look at them actually working is, is probably the single best thing you can do because you want somebody who has a decent sense of you know, doing the job properly and so forth. Um, and just looking for kinds of, okay, certain things would be a no-no, like somebody who was, who was uh, single under the age of 25 parents buying a business. That's a complete no. We just absolutely categorically would not accept somebody in that situation. Well, we shouldn't. I mean, I don't know what franchisors might do at times, but that will be the rules. If I found that out, they'd be in serious strife because, because the chance of success is so low. You look for somebody who's got a reasonable sense of business. One of the best actual ways of checking whether a person's got any sense is, is how much research they're doing. So if somebody comes to you and says, look, I've actually stopped a couple of guys in the street and I rung up the opposition. I think, yeah, great. This is, this is somebody who's good. But if somebody just comes along and says, oh, like you've got a lot of brand I want to buy, I mean, they're not, they're not even ringing up. I mean, what I would say to anybody, you want to investigate a franchise, ours or anybody else's, get a list of all the current franchisees with their phone numbers and ring as many as possible and ask them, you know, what's it like? How well are you looked after? What's your franchise all like? Just do some basic research like that. And then things like, is your, your partner, are they supportive? That's very important. You need somebody behind you who's going to say, you're doing the right thing. We believe in this. So just, just communication skills and, and general approach and so forth. Yeah, you, you do. I, I knocked back a lot of franchisees right from the beginning. Right back when I started in franchising 89, that was one of the things I was determined to do. I wasn't going to take people on that I didn't think were going to be successful. From talking with you, Jim, what I find most refreshing is that you're not focused on the money. You're actually focused on helping people, which is evident from your statement of, I don't want to retire as I have 4,000 employees depending on me, and how the business is mostly to fund the research rather than just money aspect of things. It's really refreshing. Yes. I, I actually think it's, it's, it's morally correct. But it's also in the long run, it's good business sense. People who try other people like garbage in the long run don't tend to do as well. That's my overwhelming experience. I really, really believe that it's the best way to run a business. It's basic Christian principles. It's, it's what I believe in. But I also think it's good business sense too. And I, I've often looked back on it and, and the decisions that I made were made from moral reasons against what I saw as my own financial self-interest was actually the best decisions. I mean, look, it's a very simple. I'll just give you the one particular anecdote, which I've always thought of almost the most important part of it. When I was in the early days, I was selling lawn mowing rounds and I was very bad at selling. And I'm not much of a natural salesperson. I just, I've tried it, actually tried selling stuff like Peter's door. I was terrible at it. So I was having this real trouble with doing this. And when I, and, and I just asked everybody for advice, how you sell. I just couldn't, couldn't pick this thing up. And I went to see somebody in my church who was in the, was in the advertising business. And I asked him about, to talk about, you know, I might thought I might need an advertising agency to help me to find work more efficiently. And he just, I just sat me down for half an hour in his office. This is a very successful bloke, with quite successful business. And for half an hour, he just told me about the advertising business and just everything about it, how to do it, where to do it, all the principles and stuff, everything he knew, he just gave it to me. At the end of it, he said to me, Jim, you don't need an advertising agency. You just need to do these things. And when I walked out of that, that room, I knew if I ever needed an advertising agency, I'd go straight back to him. And it wasn't just the fact that he was in my church. It was the fact that when I thought about it, the only concern that he had was my welfare and the welfare of my business. 
and and because of that I was sold on him and I remember I was walking back to the car thinking about this and thinking and I thought I thought I wonder if you could use this same approach to sell lawn mowing rounds so the next time somebody rang me about a lawn mowing business instead of trying to talk about my business I started asking questions I said you know what the cut of a lawn mowing round means which is each job done once and then I started describing how you buy a business, how you value it, what are the principles behind it. And then he, when he came to see me, I would just give him a, a talk more about the business, how to run it, how to find work, best, best advertising, everything I knew. And I just said, I've got some customers in your area. That's my total sales pitch. Now, a little while later, somebody actually rang me, one of these guys rang me, and he said, Jim, I've been offered a business in my area. What's the best? And, um, you know, which is the better one, that one or yours? And I thought about this, and I thought, well, if this is going to be real, I've got to give him the best advice for him, not for me. So I started asking questions. I said, you know, how many customers? What's the cut? How far apart are they? How long has he had it for? What's he going to be doing? Pretty obvious questions if you're in the industry, you know how to ask. So I did a valuation of the business. I allowed for the fact that I used to replace jobs and so forth, put all that in. I said to him, that's a better business by that one. There was no question because to me it had to be real. I got the same question asked me three times in a row three times I gave away the business I said to buy the other and you know what happened every single one of them bought from me from that time onwards the time I started doing that this pathetic rotten salesperson became super gym in terms of selling no more trouble selling lawn mowing rounds but that was that was an ethical decision and it was the best business decision I ever made forget about your own interests look to the interest of the person you're dealing with which is why somebody comes to me about a franchise, if I don't think they're going to succeed, I will tell them flat out no, for their sake. It's also for my sake too, because it's not good for the business to have people fail. But basically, you've got to think about the person you're dealing with, put them first. And if you do that, in the end, you will make more money, not short term, but in the end, you will. Well, thank you for your time, Jim. I wish you all the best with your organic farm and good luck with the research. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Thank you.